Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. pick up tonight where we were last Wednesday night here in Romans chapter number 8 and uh, we made it down to verse number 11 if you remember and uh, I'm, I'm thankful that we made it that far. I was hoping to make it a little bit further um, but uh, there's so much in this chapter uh, even just looking at it as a, at a glance you, you, there's so much you have to skip over. Uh, as I mentioned to you last week this is considered uh, not only is it considered one of the uh, top chapters in the Bible, if you will, of Bible doctrine, but it is considered to be the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, which most would say is, if not the greatest, one of the greatest books in the Bible when it comes to scriptural and doctrinal truth. But let's uh, stand together. We'll read in Romans chapter number 8. We'll begin in verse number 1. I do have at least a section that I'd like for us to get finished with this evening, and uh, let's read it together beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That is a statement that becomes a theme throughout this chapter, that who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin." But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. For if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. And those are the verses that we finished last week. Let's pick up this evening in verse number 12. The Bible says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bared witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer 
with him, uh, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but the hope that is seen is not hope. For what, uh, for what a man seeth, why, uh, why doth he yet hope for? For if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. But he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we'll conclude our reading here in verse 28 where the Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You may be seated. Let's bow for a word of prayer together and we'll get into the message that the Lord would have for us this evening. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into Your presence, Lord, once again as thankfully and humbly, God, as we know how. Thank You, Lord, for the privilege that we have, uh, Lord God, to be able to meet with Your people, God, to be able to worship, to be able uh, to share a prayer request, and Lord God, the concerns upon our heart for uh, the things that are going on in the lives, in our lives, in the lives of those around us. And Lord God, we're so thankful on a Wednesday night prayer meeting that we have a God that we're able to pray to. Lord, that we have a God that hears and answers prayer and is concerned with that which concerns us. Father, we do pray you would touch each of these requests as only you can. Meet each and every need as only you can. Heal those that need it. Save those that need it. Comfort those that need it. Lord God, give direction and wisdom and strength and help, Lord, to those that need it in their lives. And Lord God, we do pray as, uh, Lord, we do pray, uh, God, for those that are in need of spiritual help, God, that you would touch there with salvation. And Lord, for those that are backslid to get right. And Lord, for the saints of God to get the help they need from you. Lord, I just pray that you would meet each and every need according to your power. And Lord, I just pray for these next few moments as I often do prior to preaching, God, that you'd forgive me of sin, empty me of self, fill me with your spirit, use me, God, for your glory. Help me, God, not to say anything, God, that you wouldn't have to be said. I pray, dear God, that you would recall to my mind the things that I've studied. Help me, Lord, to clearly convey the truths, Lord, that you've placed upon my heart. Help me, dear God, as we go through these verses of Scripture to be able uh, to, to say the things, God, that you would uh, have to be said in a way that each and every person can understand, uh, Lord, what the Word of God is teaching. Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would make it applicable to their heart and to their life and help each and every person to see how we can apply these truths to our, to our own lives. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to each and every need that is here through the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, if there's one lost, I pray, God, that you'd save them. Lord, if there's one backslid, I pray, God, they'd get right with you before they 
leave. And Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would touch each and every one of your children, each and every one of your saints. May, uh, Lord, you feed them with the Word of God. Lord, may you touch them as only you can. May you fill them with zeal and vigor to walk with you and to march on for another day for your cause and for your purpose. And Father, we'll thank you, Lord, for what you do. Bless this time together. And Lord, we pray, God, that you'd be pleased with everything that's said and done. And Lord, we do ask for your help now. And God, I just pray that you would just hide us behind the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I just pray, dear Lord, you'd clothe me in my calling. Help me, God, to preach the Word of God in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. May we rightly divide the Word of truth. And we'll thank you, Lord, for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As you know, for the last several weeks now, we have on Wednesday nights been uh, looking at the subject of eternal security of the believer. And we have been going passage to passage, searching out this truth in the Scriptures. And I, I will say this this evening, it is a biblical doctrine. Amen. And if you're not convinced of that by now, God help you. Amen. Uh, but I do believe that even here in this great chapter, we find wonderful truths concerning the security that we have in salvation. We began, first of all, by talking about how in this chapter we see eternal security in what I'm calling the affirmations of God. Uh, that was verse 1 through 8. There were uh, several things that were affirmed by the Holy Ghost here in these verses. We realize that this is speaking to saved people. The Bible says there in verse number 1 that, uh, that these that are being described in this chapter are those that uh, have no condemnation. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them, uh, excuse me, to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That phrase, no condemnation, is a term of our security. That is something that uh, is true today and will be true throughout eternity to the believer. He mentions that, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That does not make the no condemnation conditional, but rather I believe it is a description of a saved individual. Who is someone that is saved? It is someone who is, has, is being led by the Spirit, uh, who is not uh, just naturally uh, walking in the flesh, that only has that as an option. But here they have the, the ability to walk after the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. In verse 1 through 8, it describes the life of a believer that is being led of the Spirit, the value of being led by the Spirit versus the, um, the devastation of allowing your life to be led by the flesh. Just because we're saved does not mean the flesh is eradicated. However, you and I must give way to the Spirit of God in our life, and we can do that, and that is a true description of a saved person because a lost person cannot let, cannot, uh, the Spirit of God is not leading them just the flesh. There is a battle that's taking place here that is described in these verses. The Bible there in verse number 2 talks about the Spirit of life in Christ making us free. That uh, freedom describes a biblical salvation. Uh, verse number 3 talks about God's Son that was uh, sent as a, uh, was sent as a uh, as, uh, as someone that was coming to die in my place. He was sent as me. He was sent for me. He died in my place. He died as me upon Calvary. He uh, was our substitute. All 
all of these things describe a sal the salvation of a believer. Before Christ, verse number 3 died, uh, it was sinners that had condemnation. But on Calvary, God allowed sin to be condemned. He describes that in verse number 3, that God's condemnation is now upon sin. God hates sin, and God has dealt with sin forever. Amen. I thank God for that. Verse number 4 talks about uh, righteousness being able to be fulfilled and accomplished uh, in the life of a believer. And uh, that is something that cannot happen in the flesh. Uh, the Bible said that Christ died so that righteousness could be fulfilled in us, that we uh, could have imputed righteousness and live a righteous life. Verse number 5 through verse number 8 talks about the battle uh, of the mind. It talks about the battle that we face with the flesh that begins in the mind, even as believers. And as tough as that sounds, that truly, as we presented last Wednesday night, is assurance of our salvation. Do you know why? Because lost people do not have a battle of their mind. They do not fight with their flesh. They give way to the flesh. But if your flesh bothers you, that is a, a good sign that you know the Lord as your Savior. If there is any pull toward God, it is the Spirit of God that pulls you in that direction. And so that is a, a, a biblical proof of the eternal security of the believer in the fact that if God allows you to constantly have that battle, that must mean every time you're battling, it doesn't kick you out of the family of God, but you are still in the family of God, put there by the Spirit of the Lord. Amen. That's verse 5 through 8. Verse, uh, verse number 9, we've seen that not only uh, is eternal security seen in these affirmations of God, these statements of truth that God makes in verse 1 through 8. But then we see that the eternal security in the acknowledgments of God. Simply put, verse number 9 through uh, verse number 11 tells us that uh, if you look at verse number 9, he said you're not, in the, you're not in the flesh. God makes that acknowledgement. However, even though there's a battle of the flesh, God does not look at us like we are just in the flesh. God says you are in the spirit. And I'll say this again, only saved people can be in the spirit. And if God acknowledges you as in the spirit and not in the flesh, I would say your salvation and the security thereof is pretty certain. Amen. If that is God's acknowledgement of your spiritual condition, that's where you are. It's not going to change. Verse number 10 talks about righteousness. Verse number 11 talks about us being risen with Christ. And I closed Wednesday night by saying this, that <coughs> when you got saved, the Bible says you were resurrected with Christ. That spiritual life that you have <coughs> is because uh, you were at the moment of salvation resurrected. The same resurrection power, amen, that brought Jesus out of the grave is the resurrection power that brought you from death to life. For you to lose your salvation would be for you to lose your eternal life, would be for you to lose that resurrected life, which would mean that Jesus could lose his. And as long as Jesus lives, you're going to live. And so therefore, he's going to live forever. Therefore, we do as well. Tonight, I want us to pick up with this thought. Brother Matthew, I'm going to need you to grab me that water if you don't mind. <clears throat> and I'm going to try not to knock it off the pulpit. We're out of bottled water tonight, so he's going to get me a cup of water. And I'm going to try not to sling it over on Brother Stacy tonight. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> Let's look in our Bibles at verse number 12. 
If you're taking notes, I'll go over the outline one more time, verse 1 through 8. It, we see eternal security in the affirmations of God. Verse 9 through 11, we see eternal security in the acknowledgments of God. But then in verse 12 through verse number 27, we see eternal security in the adoption. Thank you, brother. Adoption of God. Notice what the Bible says here in verse number 12. Look at your Bible. The Bible says this, and I think this is a powerful verse of Scripture here. The Bible says, therefore, because of all of these truths from verse number 1 to verse number 11, considering us being saved and God keeping us saved and the position that we have in Christ and the life that we can live by the Spirit, he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. In other words, I'll put it this way. What the Apostle Paul is telling these Romans is that, if, that a lot of the time you and I as Christians, we live our life as if we owe our flesh a great debt. We live for the flesh. We live after the flesh. We give most of our decisions to the flesh. We give most of our energy toward the flesh as if we're working off a debt to the flesh because we owe the flesh something. Paul here says, brethren, we are debtors. We are in debt. Debt, simply put, debt is, and I know this isn't difficult, but when you talk about debt, it means you owe somebody something. He said we are debtors. We do owe somebody something. We do owe someone our lives. Amen. We do owe our devotion to uh, someone. But it's not the flesh. The flesh has never done anything good for us. He says... We do not owe the, we do not, we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh to give them our life and our energy and our moment, the moments of our days. But verse number 13, he says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Remember I mentioned last week as he talked about death in verse number six, that the word death in verse number six, same the connotation here with the word die in verse number 13. It is an expansive word that simply means destruction in any form, a decay of any form to a uh, to someone that is lost, yes, to be carnally minded, verse 6, is death. Because so many people will turn away Christ because of their flesh and the, the, uh, the realizations of a carnal mind. However, when the Bible says here, if you live out of the flesh, ye shall die. Remember, verse 12, he's talking to brethren. You can have experience death by living for the flesh, even as a saved person. It's not spiritual death, but it'll be the decay of your spiritual life. It'll be uh, you, you watching things slip away in your walk with God, your, your zeal for the things of God, your effectiveness for God, the power of God upon your life. Those, will th those are things that will slowly slip away from you if you as a Christian decide to live for the flesh and after the flesh. And when the Bible talks about living for the flesh, you can insert this in your mind. Uh, it essentially means living like you're lost. Amen. Earlier in the chapter, it talked about living for the flesh as a lost person. That's how the lost person acts. That what separates us from the lost world is that they live only by the flesh. And you and I have the opportunity to walk in the Spirit and to follow the leadership of the Spirit and to have the Holy Ghost of God directing us and pointing us to the truth and the way of the things of God. That's what separates us. The lost crowd doesn't have that. And when the church and those that are saved, 
saved by the grace of God live after the flesh. You live in such a way as if you don't have the Spirit to lead you and guide you. As if you don't have the Word of God to lead you and guide you. That you as a Christian can live like you're lost if you choose to. And the Bible says if we do that, there will be some things that will fade away. There'll be some things that decay, that die in your life. You know, death in the world that we live in is the same way as being described here in the Word of God. I have this written in the margin of my Bible that death is not always something that happens in just a moment of time. Death is something that can happen in the process of time. I, I understand that in my own family's life. I, I watched my dad for several months waste away from brain cancer before he eventually went home to be with the Lord. I watched as a 16-year-old kid as my dad weighed less than I did, and I wasn't as big then as I am today. And I remember, the, I remember how that shook my dad that he was smaller than any of the children in his house outside of his daughter. You can die over a slow period of time. Death does not always happen in the instant. If we, we understand that in a physical sense, but if you think of it in a spiritual sense, the Word of God declares that to us plainly. All the way in the book of Genesis, God told them if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the Bible said, In the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Yes, they died spiritually in an instant, but then as all of mankind from that moment on, they began to die physically in that moment, although Abraham, or excuse me, Adam lived over 900 years. He died every day. You know, there's, you know, you think about you know, coming up on the new year, it is December, we're coming up on the new year, and when January 1st comes around, we look at it as a new year, and it's got all of these opportunities, but I think one of the, one of the ways that we ought to see a new year is not uh, being given extra time, although the passing of a day does uh, seem to give us extra time. We, God has given us another day instead of cutting our lives short, but the reality of it is, is while it may seem to us like having an extra day, as far as God's concerned, the time's not ticking forward, it's ticking backwards. We're losing time. We're dying each and every day. So here you can die spiritually over a process of time. And I wish I could report to you that I had never seen that in my Christian life, but I have. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But notice this now, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live and this isn't part of the eternal security, but we've got to at least look at it. I do believe that the word mortify here is a, is a theme in the New Testament that is uh, very popularly used by the Apostle Paul. He talks about mortifying the deeds of the flesh, meaning to put to death. Uh, in other words, he's saying if you live by the flesh, after the flesh, in the direction of the flesh, it'll bring death to you. But if you bring death to it, to the flesh you'll live. The word mortify, I've mentioned to you before, it's, it's where we get our, it's the same uh, word that we get our word mortician from. What is a mortician? Someone that deals with death. 
He's saying for us to put to death the deeds of the body in order to live. By the way, friend, that's what you ought to be doing. God has given you the ability to be saved, and He is the one that's keeping you saved. If He's willing to do that, and if He's going to do that, uh, friend, we ought to live for Him. Amen? And uh, that that's not part of the eternal security, but I do believe it's good Bible truth for each of us. Amen? That's what He's talking about. We are debtors. God, verse 1 through 11, it just described about a Savior that died for us and has given us His Spirit and uh, is allowing us to live for Him. We are indebted to God to live for Him. He's given us Himself. He's given us His Spirit. He's allowed us to have a spiritual life and to know Him and have a relationship with Him. We are indebted to Him for that. Verse number 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, notice this now, they are the sons of God. That is a definitive statement in your life. If you have the ability to be led by the Spirit, if God is leading you, you are saved. He said, they are the sons of God. God does not chastise another, another uh, person, another individual's children. He does not guide uh, the devil's children. He guides his own children. If you're led by him, you're his child. Verse 15, I, I wish I could preach these, but I've got, I want you to see the eternal security in these. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit, here it is, here's the point I wanted to make, of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Do you realize that when God saved you, that you are a part of His family in three very unique ways? When you got saved by the grace of God, the Holy Ghost of God birthed you into the family of God. You are born as a son of God. He has birthed you into his family, given you a new nature. He has given you a man. He's made you a new creature. You are brand new, and you are birthed into the family of God. And the Bible also tells us this, that you and I, there's three ways to get in a family. You're birthed in. You can be married into a family. And the Bible says that uh, Jesus is our uh, bridegroom, amen. We're his bride. We've been birthed into the family, uh, amen. We have been uh, brided into the family, if I can put it that way. We've been married into the family. And then we have been adopted into the family. Those are three ways you get into a family in this world, and it's still the same way you get into God's family. Birthed in, married in, and adopted in. Amen. And here is uh, the difference between those three things. When you are birthed into a family in this day, it's the same as in Bible days. If you're birthed into a family, you can be disowned, you can be kicked out, you can be disinherited. The family can look at you and say, we don't want anything to do with you from now on. I'm pulling you out of the wheel. I'm pulling you out of the inheritance. And because they're a natural child that is birthed in, you can do that. If you're married into a family, you can be divorced out of the family. And all of your rights of the marriage can be stripped uh, in that moment. But it, when it comes to adoption, you're chosen to be in the family. 
And when you are chosen to be in the family, it is a permanent situation. You cannot be disinherited. You cannot be removed from the family. When the Bible uses terms like adoption, I don't understand how people can read Romans chapter number 8 and read about adoption and other places in the Scripture that talk about you and I when we get saved, we're adopted into the family of God and see that they can lose their salvation. Adopted in Bible days, the same as in today. If me and my wife were to decide to uh, go through all of the process of trying to adopt a child, and we were to adopt a child, you cannot disinherit that child. You've got to take care of them. You've got to provide for them. There will be repercussions legally if you do not do so. Here in the Bible days, it was the same. Here is the difference, though. I read, I read this... Uh, uh, studying some on this this afternoon and uh, looking at some other sources of material uh, that I have. The, uh, one writer said this, said that in the first century an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adopted father uh, to continue his name and to inherit his estate. They could only give their adopted son both their name and their inheritance. In other words, adoption in Bible days was not like we look at adoption today as going uh, to some orphanage or going uh, to some uh, home where uh, the child essentially has uh, no options of a mother and a father. And so you take them in your family. It's not the rescuing of someone in need or the rescuing uh, of, 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 a, of an orphan. But in Bible days, adoption was done uh, by, especially by uh, those that... Uh, were uh, in prominent in society. Uh, they utilized adoption when maybe they may not have had any sons, so they could choose to have a son so that their family could stay on the throne, and they would be able to uh, pass the uh, pass the throne on to a male heir that was uh, had their name and was able to take their inheritance and be able to take their uh, position on the throne. To be adopted was a great honor in Bible days. And it meant that somebody really cared. And it meant that somebody really uh, saw something in you that they wanted to keep you in their family. They wanted to give you their name. They wanted to give you their inheritance. And they wanted to do that so much that they obligated themselves that, you're, that their name would never be able to be removed from you. And that you would never miss out on the inheritance. However... When it comes to adoption in Bible days, those that adopted were only able to give their name and their inheritance. But when it comes to the spiritual adoption that Jesus gives, yes, He does give us His name. We are in His family. When we, when, when we are called Christians, we bear His name and it has been given to us. We do have an, uh, an inheritance. Amen. It's been put this way that what belongs to Christ belongs to us. Amen. When we got saved by the grace of God. But what happens to us spiritually in our adoption does not happen for anyone else. And that is that Christ is able to not only offer a new name and a new inheritance, but He's able to offer us a new nature as well. 
Those that did that in the ancient world were in the Roman world were not able to offer a new nature. But Christ has done that for us. Spurgeon said this about, uh, about adoption when he was preaching on the fatherhood of God in 1858. He said, save heaven itself. There is not more blissful than to enjoy that spirit of adoption. D.L. Moody, when preaching on this very chapter, said, if I am adopted, I have become a child. God is no longer just my judge, but he is my father. Russell Moore said this about adoption. He said adoption as the gospel tells us about our uh, tells us about our identity, our inheritance, and our mission as the sons of God. We are part of a brand new family, a new tribe with a new story and a new identity. It is a wonderful thing to be adopted into the family of God. And one of the greatest truths concerning Christian adoption is that it is permanent. Adoption makes us to where we become a full heir, amen, that it means that no matter what we do that we should not have done, and it means whatever we do not do that we should have done, we cannot be disinherited, and there will most definitely be a day, dear friend, where you and I will enjoy the full inheritance that God has for us. There will be a day where we will definitely see it and it will be ours to enjoy. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in these verses. Verse 19 through verse number 27 he is offering up uh, amen truths about that adoption and in a nutshell as you read he is essentially saying do not fret the God that saved you, the God that leads you by his spirit will let you see the inheritance it's one day the spirit of the, the spirit of the world it yearns for uh, the manifestation of the sons of God our spirit longs to see the day as we traverse through this world of trials and tribulation we long to see the day where we will have our inheritance forever and friend yes we do go through this world and yes there are trials and yes there are tribulation but the Bible said there in verse 23 amen that we wait for the adoption to we have the redemption of the body. He mentions in verse 24 hope, which is a confident expectation every child of God can expect. Amen. That no matter what life throws your way, no matter where you may mess up or where you may do well, that you, because of Christ's salvation, will not lose your place in the family, will not lose your place in the, the part of the inheritance. Amen. You will make it. Amen to that inherited land. You will make it to your father's house above and you will enjoy all uh, that your father has for you. If that's not the eternal security of the believer, I do not know what he is. Amen. We see eternal security in the affirmations of God, in the acknowledgments of God, in the adoption of God, but lastly in the affection of God. I'm going to have to hurry through some of these things. Look at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. What a grand statement that is made here that all things just describe the life that is sometimes wrought with
tribulation, sometimes wrought with things that come into our existence and make us long for the day where we receive our inheritance from the Lord. He reminds us that no matter, no matter what takes place, and when those things come, in verse 26, when we go through infirmities to where we need the Spirit's help, to where we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, and the Spirit of God has to get involved and make intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. When we're going through things to where uh, we are struggling in our hearts, verse 27, he reminds us all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Verse 28 talks about our love of God. But then in verse number 29 to the rest of this chapter, in verse number th through verse number 39, it talks about God's love for us. First John said we love Him because He first loved us. When verse 29 says, for those who love God, the only reason why we can be part of that crowd that love God is because God first loved us. Look at verse 29. I believe these things show us the love of God. The Bible says here that we see the affection of God first of all in the fact that He calls us according to His purpose. Notice what the Bible says in verse 29, God's purpose is for you as a believer. He says, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called, and to whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. His purpose for us, His purpose for you and I as an individual is seen in His foreknowledge of us. God loves you enough that He knew about you before you knew about you. Amen. And He still chose to let there be a you, His foreknowledge. God knows things about me that I don't even know about myself yet, but yet He still loves me. And as we'll find out toward the end of the chapter, all those things that God already knows about me from the beginning of my life to the end of my life, everything that I'll do for Him that amounts to anything, and how no doubt those will pale in comparison to all the things that I do wrong that cause me to miss the mark of His holiness, and the good's not going to outweigh, the, outweigh the, the good's not going to outweigh the bad. God already knows that about your life and mine, and the Bible says that it's not separating us from the love of Christ. Christ. His purpose for us, His love of us is seen in His foreknowledge. It's seen not only in His foreknowledge of me and you, but of His predestination of me and you. The Bible says that we are not predestined to be, uh, to be chosen for heaven as the, uh, as the Calvinist state. Uh, it's not us being conformed uh, to condemnation and hell either, as the Calvinists say as well. But the Bible here clearly says that we are predestined. What is our destination beforehand? What is God chosen to be our destiny. The destiny of the child of God is to be conformed to the image of His Son. God loves us so much that He knows everything there is to know about us, but still chooses and by His Spirit leads and thus becoming more like His Son. He's going to give you, He loves you so much and loves me so much He's going to give me the opportunity to in a way, shape, and measure look like Him. Son. Now, I don't know about you, but I personally feel like that if I was God, I probably wouldn't give humanity that chance. 
You say, preacher, why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons is because I know I'm being conformed to His image. If I'm even making an attempt at His image, I'm going to fall so short that it may just mar what it may just mar my, mar my image of Christ. Amen. I don't want to change by letting humanity be, try to become more like Jesus. I don't even want to know what version of Jesus I would make him look like. God loves us enough, though, that he allows us to be conformed to the image of Christ. His foreknowledge of me, his predestination of me, his calling of me, calling in the Bible, first of all, speaks of our calling to salvation. He loved you enough, he extended a call for you to be saved. The Holy Ghost of God did that. And then it's a call to service as well. After you're saved, God expects you to serve Him. Remember that debt that we talked about just a minute ago? Amen. I've told you about the young preacher friend of mine. I believe I've mentioned it last week, said that we should, if He loved us enough to die for Him, we should love Him enough to, uh, if He loved us enough to die for us, then we ought to love Him enough to live for Him. Amen. We owe a great debt for living for the Lord. And then I thank God for that calling of me. And then verse 30, He said He loves us enough to justify us. The Bible said those he called he also justified. This is the transaction of eternal salvation. The end result of eternal salvation is justification. It is the end result of Christ's imputation in our lives. The righteousness of Christ being put on our account and our sin being put on Christ on Calvary. What do you get when that transaction takes place is you get a sinner that is justified. I've stated to you in the past that a simple way that I choose to remember justification, it's been said, some have said in the past that it means to be made just as if I had never sinned. But truly, it also means not just as if I had never sinned, but just as if I never was a sinner. Justification not only makes me a new creature, but renders my standing before God as if I never was the old me in in the first place. That man is gone in the eyes of God. That sinner is gone in the eyes of God. Justification means that the old me in God's sight never existed. The one that I can't forget about, he can't remember. Amen. Justification. I'm telling you, justification shows how much God loves us. Glorification shows how much God loves us. It means that God extols us, exalts us, lifts us up to a position of dignity, majesty, and excellence. He gives admission to a state of bliss. He beautifies us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that it is, in essence, Him letting us in our, in our, in our, our position before God that we are already sitting together in heavenly places in Christ. It is as good, amen, in God's sight as if we are already in heaven and our glorified bodies as perfect as we can be. Amen. That is what glorification is. And I'm thankful that one day because I've been adopted, I'm going to get my inheritance over there and I will physically be glorified one day. But now in the eyes of God, positionally, it's as good as if I'm already there. I'm already seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. I've already in the mind of God been exalted Amen. I've been given a place of majesty in his kingdom. I've been beautified. I've been given access there by God. And I'm telling you, if I have been foreknown 
If I've been predestined to be conformed to His image, if I've been called to salvation, and I've been born again, I've been justified, I've been made as if I've never sinned positionally in the eyes of God, and as far as God's concerned, it's as good if it's, um, if, as if I'm already there. How in the midst of all of those things, all of God's purpose being fulfilled in my life, can He look at me and say, I'm going to remove the salvation that I gave you? When God saved me, it's as if I never was a sinner in the first place. When God looks at me, there's no sin to take me out of the family. All He sees is what's been imputed to me. He sees my imputed righteousness. He sees that in my life when He deals with me concerning my salvation. My standing before God and my state are two completely different things. When God deals with whether or not I'm going to make it to heaven, He doesn't deal with my state. He deals with my standing. When He deals with my state, that's where I have to First John 1, 9 in my life and confess my sins and get uh, right with God. Amen. Here God deals with my salvation according to Romans chapter 8 from a positional standpoint and not from a practical standpoint. Here's the last thing I'll give you tonight. I know I've been preaching 43 minutes. You give me just a moment, I'll be done. Look at verse 31 in the Bible. What shall we say? What, sh what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Notice that statement. If God be for us, who can be against us? That implies that God's for me. God loves me enough. Think about this now. It's simple, but it's profound. As Dr. Stan Wardlaw used to say, it's profoundly simple and simply profound. God loves me so much that He is for me. He's in my corner. That's bigger than your amen in tonight. That the God of heaven is for me and for you. He's cheering us on. He's in our corner. And if God is in our corner, if God is for us, if God is pleased with us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he that, he, verse 32 tells us how for us he was. He's so for us, He gave us His Son. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? I'd imagine eternal salvation is included in all things, wouldn't you? If God gave His Son so that you could have everlasting life, why would He remove what He gave His Son to give you if He's for you? Verse 33. Again, I wish I could preach it the way that I want to. I'm not preaching through Romans chapter 8. I'm just trying to lift these eternal security truths. Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The charge. Who can lay charges against God? the ones that God has chosen? The ones that God has done? All of those things that I mentioned a minute ago. The ones that God foreknew. The one that God predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The one that God 
God called to salvation, the one that God justified, the one that God glorified. All of that is wrapped up in being called to His purpose. God's fulfilling that purpose in a believer. If God's called you and chosen you for that, He's elected you, if you will, uh, for that. Amen. Who can bring up charges against those that God has chosen to be for and to be pleased with? No one can, including ourselves. The devil cannot charge me before God for any of my sins. They've been dealt with at Calvary. You cannot bring charges against yourself in God's courtroom. They've been dealt with at Calvary. God is for you. God, according to 1 John, is your advocate. He is your lawyer. He is the one that gets us off of our charges. He's already gotten me off. Amen. Jesus Christ did better than Johnny Cochran ever did. Amen. 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 Johnny Cochran did a good job in the fact that O.J. wasn't in prison. But he didn't do a good enough job to convince this guy that O.J. didn't do it. I'm just saying. I may, get, I may get in trouble for that. I don't care if the glove fit or not. I think the man's guilty. Amen? But you can't say that about us. Jesus didn't just prove me enough to get me off. Jesus proved my case enough to where nobody can bring any charges against me. Nobody would even try to, dare to. The Bible says, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God that justifies. It's God that has cleared our name. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. In other words, if our sins are against God and he's for us, who in the world are we bringing charges to? <laughs> Who is he that condemns? The only one that can condemn is God, and God's for us. God got us all. Amen. No charges can be brought before God because God's on our side. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, tribulation, severe affliction, distresses of life, the word tribulation literally means to beat or to thrash. Have you ever felt like your life, life has just beat you down and thrashed you around? Those moments, can that separate you from the love of Christ? Can distress those painful moments of life, anguish of body or mind, misery? Have you ever been miserable before? Can distress separate you from the love of Christ? Persecution, being brought... Uh, being afflicted, being brought to affliction or pain or punishment for, by someone else. Can that separate you from the love of Christ? All of these are rhetorical questions. Famine, the loss of something in life, a dearth of things in your life, things just seem missing that you wish were there. Nakedness, the loss of greatly needful things like clothes and food, peril, those, those moments where you're in danger and at risk, sword, sword represents death in the Bible, 
Can those things separate us from the love of Christ? I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. But tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword, they are in answer to the, this question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Those things are not people. But they, they are answering the question of who can separate us from the love of Christ? It is as if these things are being personified as people that are coming against your life, as opponents to you being in Christ. I wonder, this was a thought that I had, it doesn't exactly answer the question of who. I wonder, now, you, now this may be specula speculative, but do you remember as we went through this study, one of the number one excuses that people give when they believe in losing salvation, they say that, that I can jump out of the Father's hand, that I can lose my salvation because of something that I do, and I can make the choice to no longer live for God and lose my salvation. I wonder if the who... Who shall separate us from the love of God if this question could not be answered, find an answer in ourself? In other words, that God here very well may be dealing with the fact of us losing our salvation by our own means. That maybe this could be talking about, can the tribulation bring us to the place where we lose our place in the love of God? Can distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword bring us to the place to where we, we do things and have an attitude toward God to where we lose our salvation? Here's where I came to that, that thought, verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I'll be honest with you, in the context of Romans chapter number 8, that verse just doesn't seem to fit very well. But here, when you go back to uh, this passage of Scripture in the Psalms, uh, it is expressing the heart of an individual that is going through tribulation, that is going through uh, trials, and they're, they're, they're being questioned as to whether or not they're blaming God for what's being brought into their life. God, it's for your sake that we're killed all the day long. God, it's because of you that we're going through these things. It's because of you that I'm having this tribulation. It's because of you that I'm going through this distress. It's because of you that I'm being persecuted. It's because of you that I have this famine. It's because of you that I have this nakedness. It's because of you that I'm going through peril. It's because of you that I'm facing the edge of the sword. God, it's your fault. I would imagine that just like the psalmist, many of us have come into places in our life where we said, God, you could have solved this. You could have prevented this. You could have kept this away from me. And you chose not to. And therefore, I'm not living for you anymore. I wonder if Romans 8 could be talking to an individual and it says, who 
shall separate us from the love of Christ. And it lets us know that even if we charge God for the problems and issues in our life, even if we falsely charge and blame Him, even though He's not charging and blaming us for anything we've done, He's chose not to charge us, but we'd look in His face and charge Him. Would that cause us to lose our salvation? Would that cause us to separate, be separated uh, from the love of God? And when you study the New Testament, love, the love of God is not just an emotion, but it is a location. It is a place. Jude said this, keep me in the love of God. It's a position. It's a place. Am I going to be removed from the family of God? Am I going to be removed from the blessings of God? Am I going to be removed uh, from uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the position that I have in Christ because of an attitude like that? If you think of it in that perspective, God would have every reason to remove us from His family. You're talking about us charging Him with wrongdoing when He has already said He's never going to charge us for what we've done against Him? That would surely be enough to get us kicked out, wouldn't it? The resounding answer is this. Verse 37, Nay, no. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Notice he says that, nor any other creature. <laughs> Ever seen that ever interested you as to why it'd be phrased that way? In other words, it seems like he's saying, you or anybody else, you can't do it and no other creature can do it. Separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You say, preacher, what is the story of these verses? It is the fact that God is for us. It is in the fact that God loves us so much, it dis he, His love dispels all of our opposition, removes any opportunity to where when God looks at us, He's not looking for things to blame us for, but He is looking at His Son, and He has removed all positional guilt from our lives. And so God deals with us positionally when it comes to our salvation. He deals with us in Christ, and there is nothing that we could do or that anyone else could do or anything that that the death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, death, any other creature. That's God's way of explaining everything and anything. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There is nothing that can remove you from His family. That is how secure our salvation is. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.